DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, fellow diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digging into diverse topics, all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, then won't you kindly consider supporting the project financially? We have links to Patreon and PayPal at rockandrollarchaeology.com. A dollar a month, a big 12 bucks a year, diggers, and we will continue to put it to good use. Okay, business handled. Surf's up, diggers. Brian, are you ready for it? This is it. Surfing is the only life, the only way for me and I surf, surf with me. I got up this morning, turned on my radio. I was checking out the serpent scene to see if I would go. And when the DJ tells me that the serpent is fine, that's when I know my baby. That's the Beach Boys from a live performance in Hawaii, September of 1967. You, surf cats, might remember this one off the bootleg live album, Late in Hawaii. Even though the California sound they largely invented was now all over the radio, fall of 1967 was not the best of times for the Beach Boys. Pet Sounds was a big success in 66. Along with Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, it was a rock and pop album by a major American act that could stand up, technically, commercially, artistically, to the ambitious, innovative work coming from the Beatles. This was big stuff. The Beatles were at their absolute peak in this period. Think of Pet Sounds as Brian Wilson's brilliant response to Rubber Soul. So, right away, the Beatles answer back with Revolver, their best album, very arguably the best rock album ever made. To Brian, it must have seemed like John and Paul were out to get him. Shaken, perhaps, but undaunted just the same, Brian Wilson attempted to outdo them, and outdo himself with a new project. Brian started working with a new lyricist, Van Dyke Parks, and the two of them came up with the working title, Smile. The early Smile sessions were promising indeed. The first finished cut was something they started working on during the Pet Sound sessions. Brian's biggest song ever, that cosmic teenage symphony, Good Vibrations. Uh, That one came out as a single in October of 1966. At least 90 hours of studio time went into its creation. Right away... Brian Wilson and Van Dyke Parks came up with a great tune, Heroes and Villains. But it wasn't long before the Smile Project ran into problems. Its eventual demise was the consequence of Brian's neurotic indecisiveness and a marked lack of enthusiasm from the other Beach Boys. The project was eating time and bleeding money, and Capitol Records was freaking out. So, in February of 67, Smile was abandoned and the master tapes were shelved. They came back in June for another try, this time in Brian's home studio, using simpler arrangements and lo-fi production. They took good vibrations, some smile cuts, and cobbled them together with the new tracks. Capitol released it as Smiley Smile in September. It was a dud, a flop. Some critics praised it, but to a lot of fans, it just sounded self-indulgent and weird. Smiley Smile did well in England, but barely cracked the top 40 in America. It was the first setback for the Beach Boys, who had been riding an unbroken streak of commercial success going back to 1962. Over the years, Smiley Smile's reputation has been rehabilitated. 
It's become something of a cult favorite and is often acknowledged as a pioneering effort by fans of ambient and lo-fi music. But at the time, things weren't looking good. With the benefit of hindsight, we can see this was a turning point. Brian would step back, become a troubled recluse, and Carl Wilson would become the Beach Boys' primary composer. 1967 begins a period of slow decline into artistic and commercial mediocrity for the band. That decline would stretch into the mid-70s. So, fall of 1967, time to regroup. Head out to Hawaii, where the sun would shine on them. They would cut a live album for holiday release that would put the Beach Boys right back in it. Mm, not so much. Best laid plans and all of that. For the first time in over two years, Brian joined the band on stage, but the results were disappointing. Emotionally, psychologically, and pharmaceutically, Brian was in real trouble. In the end, the live album project was also canned and shelved. They probably should have gone ahead and put it out. For decades afterwards, bootleg recordings of those Hawaii shows were bought up on the down low by Beach Boys fans. A lot of effort and expense, with not a lot to show for it. Capital went from freakout to full-on meltdown. So it was back into the studio to try to salvage something out of all of this. They came up with a much more commercial attempt, released in December of 1967, Wild Honey. Most of the songs are credited to Mike Love and Brian Wilson, and this was a group effort, the entire band coming back together in the studio all at the same time, for the first time in a while. But, like Smiley Smile, it wasn't a big hit. The sales numbers for Wild Honey were solid, but unspectacular. And at that time, for the Beach Boys, nothing less than spectacular would do. Again, like Smiley Smile, Wild Honey would grow in stature as the years went by. We hear it now as a rollicking, good-time blend of the California sound with some of the great R&B music being made in the mid-60s America. In 2012, Capitol put out a remixed and remastered Smiley Smile. It is now canon. And now, Wild Honey has been given the same special treatment, remastered and remixed in stereo and available as a digital download, or for you old-school analog types, on high-quality vinyl. Enter today's special guests, Mark Lynette and Alan Boyd. These two guys did the hard work of finding most of the masters and working the sliders and stems on this great stereo remix. The new package is called 1967 Sunshine Tomorrow. It was released on June 30th, 2017. It is living history. The Beach Boys in that pivotal year for rock and roll, 1967. And it's a great listen and a good time, too. I had the opportunity to chat with Mark and Alan about Sunshine Tomorrow on its release day, no less. It's a great package, with outtakes from Smiley Smile, along with live cuts from the unreleased Laid in Hawaii. So, let's get to it. Let's ride the wild surf. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. All right, guys. First, let's tell the diggers a little bit about both of you. Now, Mark, you are a producer and an engineer working on, you've been working up with the Beach Boys for a while. Almost 30 years, yeah. Yeah, you've also worked, I think, with Los Lobos, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, the Chili Peppers, Randy Newman, Jane's Addiction. Uh, is it true your first job was with Frank Zappa? Well, my first big-time professional job, yeah. I came out to California in 1972 or three, and fumbled around here in a couple of really crummy studios for about a year and a half, gave up, and went back east. And uh, God help me, went back, went back to college. And uh, I was attending Boston University, but I was still sort of knocking on doors and you know trying to, trying to find something to do in, in, the, in the record industry, in the recording uh -huh. industry. 
And uh, I met somebody who worked at uh, Hanley Sound, which was the big East Coast sound company. They'd done Woodstock. They designed the Fillmore East uh, sound system. And I came home from photography class one Friday afternoon and got a phone call from her saying that uh, uh, Frank Zappa was starting his tour in Hartford that evening. They had supplied his, his front of house mixer for the tour, and the guy was deathly ill and, and wasn't going to be able to do it. They didn't have anybody else. So she had me call the road manager. And, of course, I think he would have taken anybody who knew what a microphone was. So they had me fly down to Hartford. I, I got I got to the show just as uh, I believe it was Mountain was finishing their set. Found the road manager who sent me out front and said, "Okay, watch what this guy's doing. You're taking over after tonight." Well, in <laughs> fact, I took over after about half an hour. The guy was really, uh, you know, didn't quite know sick. what he was doing, huh? Well, you know, he's sick. I don't know. I, you know, Aww. he disappeared at one point, came back for a few minutes, disappeared again, and never to be seen. So I finished out the set and. Uh, <laughs> and the road managers came out afterwards. You know, uh, I, I think it was uh, you know said oh, this is 1974. So he uh, pay his $400 a week, $25 a day per diem. You get caught doing drugs, you're fired. And the next the next morning, I found myself on the tour bus with Frank, uh, the whole band, and uh, Captain Beefheart. And, wow! Uh, I worked for Frank for about a year and a half. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because I, I was a huge fan, so oh. I couldn't have lucked into a better. Uh, a better job, even though I only I only lasted as uh, with him for a couple of years, just because after the second tour we did, he let everybody go, and I I went over and worked for uh, Earth Wind and Fire after that. Yeah, he did. He 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 constantly moved people around and moved band members around and things like that. So now you've wor been working with Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys since 1987. Is that correct? Yeah. And Alan, you're a producer and a filmmaker and archivist and have worked with the group since the mid-90s. And is it right that you've been a Beach Boy obsessive your whole life? Oh, yeah. I mean, ever since I was a little kid. Very, very much so. I think I'm, I'm certain I was the only eight-year-old in my neighborhood who got Sunflower the week it came out. Really? So Now, are you a California boy? Yeah, yeah. Grew up in the, uh, in the Bay Area, up north, uh, just a bit south of San Francisco, in what is now Silicon Valley. Uh-huh. And uh, it was an interesting time to be a Beach Boys fan because I kind of looked out in a way because they were decidedly unhip at that point in time. And my brother, who was very much a music uh, guy back then, was 11 years older than me. And he and all of his friends just gave me all their Beach Boy records. Oh, really? That's like, very nice. The Beach Boys, you can have this. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, very cool. Well, hey, I think we switched places. I'm I'm born and raised in uh, in L.A. and uh, moved to the Bay Area. As a matter of fact, I was born in Hawthorne in 1961, which I believe is the birthplace and time of the Beach Boys themselves. That's right. Yeah. That year. Yeah. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I was a kid, I was a contrarian. A lot of my friends were Beach Boy fans. I was a Jan and Dean fan, just to be contrarian. <laughs> I, I grew up in I grew up in New York, and I bought all those records. And I, I'm 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 ten about ten years. I'm no, I am. I'm ten years younger than Brian. So I I bought their first records on Capitol, you know, as they as they were coming out, and I still have them all. In fact. But yeah, them, Jan and Dean, every, we were all sort of obsessed with this this California surf, skateboarding, hot rod, uh, cartoons uh, kind of thing in New York. Go figure. Oh, the West is the best, let me tell you. Yeah. You live here now permanently, you know. Yeah, that's, uh, well, I came out here because of the business, you know, wa wanting to be in the music business. And um, it was either, you know, to me, it was either here or, uh, you know, England was, was where right. records that I liked seemed to be coming from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, so let's get into it. So the the new set is called 1967 Sunshine Tomorrow mm -hmm. and includes most of the work from 50 years ago, all, all of 1967 it appears, that the Beach Boys were doing at the time. Um, there are three distinct pieces to the package. Wild Honey, which is now in stereo for the first time, Smiley Smile, and uh, uh, Smiley Smile and Wild Honey outtakes, and then even some of the abandoned late in Hawaii live sessions. Do I have that right, Mark? That's yeah. right. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. As well as um, a batch of uh, live recordings from a tour that they did at the end of the year. Uh, I think uh, some in Detroit and uh, in Pittsburgh, right. and that was the, the, the end of the fall tour or something like that, right? Yeah, they called it the uh, Thanksgiving tour. Uh -huh. And it uh -huh. literally um, started a couple of days after they delivered the uh, Wild Honey Masters to uh, Capitol Records. 
Yeah, that, that's quite an output. So, you know, you, you start with, uh, I know this begins with Smile, and we'll get into that a little bit. That gets changed up, gets abandoned. They move to Smiley Smile. They do that in the early part of the summer, and then they come back and do uh, Wild Honey, which is, you know, very, very different records. Mm-hmm. Um, so let, let, let's just talk about where the Beach Boys were in 1967. Um, would it be fair to say they were entering into another phase of their career? And, and Alan, I think you're the archivist. Do you want to take this one? Yeah, I mean, certainly they, I mean, they've gone through a number of different careers and almost, you know, musical identities over the years. But that was a very important one because they kind of had to reestablish themselves as a group after the Smile Project collapsed. Uh, and part of it was, I guess, just a desire to get back to basics and figure out how to make music together again. And I think a part of it was serious contractual pressure because they owed capital um, at least a couple of albums by the time uh, Smile collapsed. And they had certainly gone through all of the advance money on that project and probably worth the next two or three albums worth uh, on those very elaborate um, studio sessions that Brian held for the Smile Project. Yeah, so like Pet Sounds, obviously Brian's recognized masterpiece, which was released the year before and had that Phil Spector-inspired massive production, the symphonic arrangements by the Wrecking Crew, uh, and it was also infused with the psychedelic spirit of the times in the 1960s. Uh, Very different than what you get, certainly, with Wild Honey. Well, what's interesting about Smile, Smiley Smile, and Wild Honey, and this goes back to Good Vibrations, is that Brian was at times working in a very much a modular kind of a way in that he would record songs and pieces and sections and then stitch the pieces together later to make the uh, final masters. And he's still doing that on a number of the songs in the uh, Wild Honey Project. But that was something that he started and worked very successfully with Good Vibrations. And he was trying to do an entire album in that fashion, which was Smile. And if one reason or another, and people have argued and speculated about this for years, he was never able to put the pieces together. And so he kind of had to go back to square one because they had to put something out. Now, I think in the obviously they did, I mean, Brian did come back to it, uh, what, about 15 years ago and completed Smile. Right. Mm-hmm. And now, did you guys work on that? I, I did. Yeah. The, and I think you won a Grammy for that, right? No. Uh, I was nominated for an engineering Grammy. The only Grammy for that project was Brian got one for uh, Miss uh, Fire, you know, Mrs. O'Leary's Cow. We oh, had the unfortunate <laughs> – we were nominated all over the place, but that was the year of the Ray Charles biopic yes. record and uh, his death. And uh, that's – that, that's hard. It's hard to beat that. So every everything that we were nominated for, where the Ray Charles project was nominated, we we lost to it. Uh, totally understandable. But uh, <laughs> that smile release, uh, it was, I, I'm really happy that it finally got a chance to get put together properly and and brought out to the world, and it got rave reviews. So I certainly remember. Oh, and the that. live uh, the live presentations were wonderful. Yes, and I think it was. Well, I mean, Brian said it was. I think it was such a relief for him to finally get this out of his system and oh, yeah. have people really like it. I mean, yeah. it was huge weight off of his shoulders. I think. Yeah, I, I recall when we were mixing the uh, the album, we're doing it in set in, you know, three parts basically, and he would come and listen to each section here. And I remember uh, when we finished the third section and I handed him, you know, a reference copy and, you know, told him that, you know, that's it, Brian. I mean, you know, this is the, re- you know, a record of, of Smile finished. And uh, it, it, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that it was almost like, you know, you, you saw a curtain drawn or, or, or a cloud passing. And uh, I know that it was, it was a big thing for him. I mean, in spite of, you know, being asked about it for all those years, it really wasn't something that he had just, just you know, decided he, he didn't need to finish. It was something that had bothered him all those years. And to finally do it and then to have it recognized um, after that was, you know, definitely a positive thing in his life. Yeah, that was a really special moment. Glad to see that was uh, that that occurred. So, so let's get back to this. So, Smiley Smile was recorded in, uh, I believe, June and July of '67. Is that right? That's, mm-hmm. Yep. And 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 then Wild Honey comes just a couple of months later in uh, 
September. Is that correct? Yeah, but it's mostly October and November of '67. Okay, all right. With the uh, the the whole laden Hawaii thing takes place in the middle of that. Wow, that is a lot of output. There. Yes, they uh, they were working their tails off. Yeah, but the group always had a lot of output. I mean, you know, this is we're now talking 1967, which is only five years since the start and really only four years since their first re recording for Capitol. Alan, you may be able to say how many how many albums? Well, 1964 alone, they did four albums that were finished by like July of that year. They, you know, essentially recorded four and a half albums worth of stuff in uh, 1964 alone. They were very prolific. Yeah, that's crazy. And then by 66, the band is out, out on the road. Brian's staying home and composing mm -hmm. uh, at home. So that allows for even more uh, output, uh, even though the, the quantity didn't uh, maybe uh, beat what was done in the early years, uh, but the quality. Uh, yeah, no, Brian out. was obviously taking much more time on his productions by 66. But I don't know, how much material did he record on Good Vibrations before he... Oh, yeah, well, finished it. I mean, <laughs> well, we have a whole on the on the, the Smile Sessions project. There's a whole CD, an 80 minute CD that's just uh, condensed versions of all the uh, Good Vibration sessions. I always felt that uh, you know it, it was less surprising that Brian couldn't finish Smile because of the tech the technology lacking uh, to be able to assemble all those pieces and experiment with them. I, what I thought was more amazing was that he did finish Good Vibration. When you listen to all the extant sessions and um, and then look at you know how he took a piece from here and a piece from there, you know, verse from this, chorus from that, B section here, that he was able to stitch that together, the, just the track. That to me is is more amazing uh, than the than that he couldn't put the whole Smile album together. I, I mean, I think obviously there were other issues, but a large large part of the problem uh, was clearly that the technology didn't exist in music. You, you might have been able to do something similar, you know, if you're working in film, because film editing was designed for that. Music in you know music editing really until Pro Tools came along, I mean, or random access editing, you know, just wasn't wasn't designed for that. And I know when we did the smile session and we had obviously, uh, you know, computer editing and we had a, uh, you know, FileMaker uh, document so we could find what we were looking for. It was still a monumental project. And that was just to, to duplicate how Brian had finished it, you know, several years before. So to go back to 66 and uh, try to do that, I mean, just some of those smile edits that we uh, ended up doing for the uh, 2011 box set, you really could not have done with a razor blade, you know, because back then they were editing, you know, just putting pieces of quarter inch tape together with a razor blade. I remember when, you know, putting the song Vegetables together that in order to make the uh, some of the transitions smooth, I had to make slightly differing discrete cuts in each of the eight tracks. Yeah, it's called and, window edits. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. On, make the edit work. Well, and that and that, and that, that continues through to Smiley Smile and uh, Wild Honey and this entire project because yeah. again, uh, it's a much simpler. The, the um, technology is available now. Right. Yes. And, and and compared to Smile, they're much simpler performances. I mean, they're much more songs, but they were still being a lot of them were being assembled where they'd record a verse and maybe make three copies of it. And, you know, and, and do the different vocals or on the one copy, do the different vocals and then mix it as many verse one, mix it, let's say three verses, mix it three times and mix three choruses and then edit those together. So if, if we didn't have if we didn't have that kind of random access editing to put to assemble, uh, finally assemble a multi-track, uh, complete multi-track on, on all these songs, we would have had to do the same thing, uh, mix the pieces and then cut the pieces together with, you know, tape and a razor blade. Oh, that would have been insane. Uh, well, it would have been doable. I went, you know, when I did the Pet Sounds box in '95, I think I was still editing the set, the sessions on tape with a razor blade. And you know, of course, when we get to the Pet to the Smile sessions, we're doing it all digitally. And even on this, and it, and it's just so much better because you can do you can do things that's much more smoothly, and you you can always keep moving forward. Whereas if you're cutting you're cutting tape, it's a little harder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank God for uh, for technology. Yeah, so, you can't can't really undo a tape splice. 
Now, you once it's done in the Masters, yeah, it's done. We just recently were talking about, obviously, you know, Sgt. Pepper's 50th uh, box set that came out and, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the famous uh, Strawberry Fields break between the right. uh, yeah. the slower version and the faster version with, you know, not only different tempos, but uh, but yeah. uh, different yeah. keys. And, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Emmerich literally had to slice a long piece of two pieces of tape to, to put together. And here you're telling me Good Vibrations was how many backing tracks? Uh, six sections, I think. Six yeah. different sections yeah. that were done at six different times. Well, the, all the choruses are the same, and all the verses, well, both verses are the same. But but uh, it's more the pieces that weren't used. Yeah. You know, because they were record. You know, they do a session and do and do the verse a different way, do the chorus a different way, do uh, you know, do a different bridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was as much about what not to use as anything else. Well, let's get back to this package. So, what what are some of the special tracks people should pay attention to in the in the new package regarding the smiley smile sessions, Mark? The one that that everybody seems to really be hitting on is uh, the fall breaks uh, and back to winter, the Woody Woodpecker Symphony uh, alternate that we created on on disc two, where we uh, we built the track so you can see how how the various pieces uh, were added to create it, and at the and the last two because it's a cyclical piece. And by the last two, uh, you've got everything in. That one seems to have worked out uh, really well as far as the Smiley stuff. It's also nice that we we, uh, finally presented the Heroes and Villains uh, backing track. Mm, Uh, mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about the Smiley Smile album, I mean, it was very much a homemade record done on, you know, rented equipment in uh, Brian's house. But the story goes that he had acquired or was given a Baldwin home theater organ. And Brian obviously just loved the the texture and the musical sound of this thing because it's all over that record. And it has a very kind of almost sort of a strange, at times sort of buzzy, slightly lo-fi sound to it. Wasn't it also detuned? Isn't that true? No, that was his piano. piano. Oh, okay. Okay. And his first wife, Marilyn, has told the story that Brian sat uh, next to the piano tuner and was humming notes to him to get it just slightly off the way that he liked. Hmm. So I guess it was, you know, Brian's uh, custom-sounding uh, piano that he used on both that album and uh, a lot of Wild Especially Hunting. Especially on Wild Hunting. Well, yeah, yeah. another prepared piano. I mean, Brian clearly liked the idea of altering the piano. You, you hear other songs where they put tape on the um, on the strings mm-hmm. to make it a more to make it so it sounds like a plucked instrument. Uh, Aren't you glad it's the primary instrument on that? It's that detuned piano, but with the uh, strings taped, so it sounds more like kind of a mallet type of a type of an instrument. But going back to that organ, I think the mix that Mark put together of uh, Fall Breaks and Back to Winter really shows off uh, what Brian could do with that big old crazy piece of furniture, you know, because it's all these different layers of sounds from that organ. And Brian was apparently so enamored of the sound of that organ that when they made the decision to go to Hawaii to record some live shows. He had it shipped, and there it was on stage, and it was sort of the primary sound on the live tracks. And so for this laid-in-Hawaii thing, almost get this feel of the Beach Boys' greatest hits as if they had been recorded for the Smiley Smile album. Right. So so now this was, I believe, the laid-in-Hawaii bit. It was a bootleg for the longest time. It was never released. It was dropped uh, at the time. And this was also the first time that Brian had played with the band in, what, about two years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. He had last done some shows with him in Chicago in early 65. Wow. And when, right. they, and when they recorded in Michigan in 66, Brian was there to supervise but, but did, not, uh, did not play or sing. Okay. So why the inclusion in this package, just to complete what 1967 was about for the boys? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we tried trying to include it. Well, the the as much from 67 that hasn't already been released. I mean, we already did a full stereo version of Smiley Smile. Uh, what about five years ago? Yeah, there was no reason. To, I mean, if we had in, if, if we had a third disc, I, I guess we would have included that. <laughs> You know, just to be completist, and I think it's, I think it's, and, and we probably would have included the mono versions as well if we had, you know, an infinite amount of room. But yeah, that was the idea: was to present everything, all the major and and major unreleased pieces that uh, the group worked on in '67. 
Well, somehow I bet you in the end everything will uh, be out because you do have an infinite amount of room with the internet and you know the sharing services and what have you. There's you know the, you're getting away from these tangible held pieces to where music is just now available. And I know that's a separate conversation that we could. Well, there's more. Yeah, there's a lot more live material from '67 that hopefully you know will will come out at some point. Great, great. All right, so let's get to the the second album uh, of 67, and and that is Wild Honey, which was released on December 18th, I believe the same day as Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, Now, Wild Honey is very different than what Brian and the boys had been doing up until then. We talked a little bit about uh, some of the psychedelic period, uh, you know, the big production pieces that uh, that had been going on. And you still get a bit of that in Smiley Smile. But, you know, Wild Honey is more of a uh, soul R&B uh, record. So why the change in tack? I, you know, I think part of it was, I think they, I get the impression that working on the laden Hawaii stuff in the studio, that kind of got them back to playing together again, which they hadn't really done all that much. Yeah, and let's say that that they had gone to Hawaii. They, I guess, had recorded two shows and a rehearsal. Things didn't work out, so then they came back to L.A. and, and they were going to do a live-in-the-studio type of album. Is that correct? That's essentially what they did. It's kind of a fake live album. They recorded, pretty much recreated the uh, the Hawaii concerts Although they, I mean, they actually recorded it like like a record, and they did basic tracks first, and then you know overdubs and vocals. But for whatever reason, they opted not to finish that. My guess is is that Brian and Mike started coming up with material, and they figured, you know, why don't we just do a new album now? Mm-hmm. You'd have to ask them. I mean, it, it is interesting since they basically had ninety percent of the of the record done, and um, it, and never and never even attempted to turn to turn it in, as far as we know. And it would have obviously satisfied something contractually. So it, it, right. it is interesting that rather than do that, and after a fair amount of work, my impression is that the Wild Honey sessions were very. And I almost hate to use this word because it sounds kind of pretentious, but there was something very organic about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's just they came up with some idea for some songs, and I think the guys had been listening to a lot of R and B on the radio. And I think another thing that ended up influencing the sound of this record was the fact that Carl Wilson kind of comes out of his shell, yeah, and reveals that he's got a real rock and roll voice. Yeah, who knew? I, yeah, because I, I, I don't. I'm not sure I ever listened to Wild Honey. I had probably been gone. You know, I kind of was into the. The, the beachy thing for a bit and then you know because of my age moved on to other types of, of music and you know I've been listening to this for the last couple of weeks and yeah the thing that really stands out is Carl's voice yeah because even um, even on Smiley Smile and Good Vibrations and God Only Knows he had this very almost sort of breathy soft ethereal quality to a lot of his vocals mm-hmm. and suddenly who knew it this this 20 year old kid comes out and he can you know, he can belt and scream with the with the best of them. Yeah, quite ballsy trying to outdo Stevie Wonder uh, the same yeah. year that uh, I Was Made to Lover comes out. Uh, yeah. That's, that's pretty, now, pretty now, crazy. That wasn't that unusual back then, though, because, you know, if you go back and you look at a lot of pop music in the 60s, if somebody had a hit, everybody covered it. Yeah, that's true. I, I would say in the rock genre, there was much more in the early part of the 60s, and you were getting less of that in the later part of the 60s, is, is, is what I get. But I mean, to the point, though, you know, Carl Wilson uh, shows up, and, it, and and that's the first thing that pricks your ears up, other than the fact that, wow, there's a big change in, in tone and, and musicality here from what they had been doing. Uh, it's got, like I said, this soul and R&B thing, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's Carl, who's uh, sitting on top of uh, many of these songs. And a, lot, and a lot of the songs on there, too. Brian is singing in a much, he's starting to display a much grittier approach to some of his leads. If you listen to something like Here Comes the Night or even his um, take of You're So Good to Me on the, um, you know, the Wade in Hawaii session stuff. Mm-hmm. The Beach Boys are kind of, they sound a bit garage bandy in this one. Yeah, it, it's, uh, well, yeah, they, they've removed a lot of that perfected production that Brian had been going for, and it's a little bit more loosey-goosey, a little bit more of a, of a rock band. And mm-hmm. again, uh, maybe maybe a little bit ahead of where the Beatles were heading uh, here uh, in 1968, huh? Somebody uh, made the point back then, I believe it was 
a writer named Paul Williams, when he was interviewing a fellow named David Anderley, who was very much a part of the um, Smile Sessions. And um, this was all in Crawdaddy magazine back in the day. And I remember reading where David said, when he first heard Wild Honey, he kind of dismissed it. But about a year later, he realized that it had sort of led the way to albums like the White Album, and a, particularly he mentioned John Wesley Harding, mm, mm-hmm. um, Bob Dylan album. And it's like, hey, the Beach Boys did it first. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was strip it down to just just music, you know, forget all the psychedelic and the big production and all that. Let's just get down to like playing some honest, raw music and just put it out there. And uh, that's what I find so refreshing about Wild Honey. And it's an interesting thing to note that sometimes when we play these new tracks, particularly the new stereo mix to some folks, we get the comment that it sounds very modern. Very sort of the the new yes the and, and I I just started listening to it in the last couple of days because um, I I was listening to the mono track a couple of weeks ago the mono album and yeah there it, there's a very big difference. It's interesting because I played this uh, this new collection for some people who are they're not Beach Boys fans. Mm-hmm. These are folks who love um, or like this one girl. She's a writer in particular. She loves Iggy Pop punk rock david bowie but she fell in love with this with this whole record uh she liked the kind of raw basic approach to it and i was surprised when she listened to the version of heroes and villains that was from a rehearsal in hawaii she sat up listened to it a couple times and said that's my favorite version of the song wow this is someone who you know never quite caught into pet sounds and smile and all the beach boy stuff but really really enjoyed this record a lot well, I, that's the big news on this package. It's that the album, for the first time, is released in stereo. And to your point, Alan, that it's a big, big difference. So let's get into that, Mark. Uh, I, I guess the first thing is finding the masters to work on. Well, we, we're fortunate in that the Beach Boys have always controlled their tapes. And uh, I, I can't say that anybody, you know, 40, 50 years ago was, was <laughs> nobody was, was thinking towards the future and that we'd want to have this stuff around. Right. but. Uh, fortunately, I don't know, somewhere, you know, I'd say maybe 90% of, uh, of their masters have survived. I mean, there's a handful, unfortunately, including the final master of multi-track of Good Vibrations. It's probably the biggest loss. Mm-hmm. But the majority of them ha- you know, have survived. So in the, uh, on this project, the only thing that we didn't, we didn't find was the edited master for Mama Says. Right. We have the outtakes, but somehow the, the reel with the um, – that was assembled and then they did the overdub on has has escaped but every everything else uh we had and the, well in the, about 50 years it'll show up on antiques road shows, yeah, you, you never know i mean i'll tell you that that earlier this year yeah it was earlier this year um we finally recovered a tape that i i found out about uh, eight years ago had been sitting in a derelict uh, studio here in la uh somebody alerted me to it i was i was able to go and see it but the owners at that point weren't you know, weren't amenable to giving it to us. And it took eight years of sort of just keeping an eye on it and finally, finally got it back. Yeah, you're right. Things, things do just tend to pop up. I mean, we, we've gotten almost all of the shutdown volume two masters back that were sitting on a couple of different people's shelves for literally 50 years. So you, you never know. I, I, unfortunately, I don't think the Good Vibrations Master is ever going to pop up because the, the story seems to go that that was physically destroyed along with several hundred other tapes in about 1979. Oh, what's the story there? What I've been told is when they closed the CBS recording studio, you know, a lot of tapes were a lot of tapes were just left there, and apparently they, it was a radio studio, so the balcony was where they 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 had put all the tapes, and I don't know, it, it was turned into a, a, a TV studio. And at some point, 10 years later, uh, somebody decided they wanted the space. And so they went over there with a bandsaw and just sliced them up and threw them away, including uh, CBS Masters. You have to realize that, that before the advent of the CD, there was virtually no reason for a record company to think this stuff was worth saving. Right. It, it's 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 not the only story like that. It's pr- probably not. It's, it's really not the worst story I've ever heard. So it's more amazing that the stuff you know the stuff that has survived. And in terms of the Beach Boys, what's wonderful is you know because of the way 
uh, pop records were made in, in the 60s where you'd record on a multi-track and then if you needed more tracks, you'd, you'd bounce that over to another one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the only thing that a record company would routinely save would be that last multi-track. Yeah, so, two-track. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, just the well, no, no, the two, the two track too, but they 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 would likely save the last multi track, the the, the tape that. Oh, would, I see. Yeah, the fi the final bounce, right? Yeah. Right. So and so, for example, you know, especially during like like summer day, summer nights, pet sounds, you've got Brian cutting the basic track on on three track or four track, mixing that down to mono onto another four track, or going over to CBS and doing it onto an eight track, doing the vocals and then mixing all that down to mono for the record. So, but when we went to do the the stereo version, you want to sync all that up. So you've got the you've got the three track backing track, and the vocals all in sync, and that's a technical process. But if they had turned their tapes into capital, uh, even if they had survived, because tapes tend to walk away, it's unlikely that those tapes all would have existed to be resynced. It, it's just in terms of practicality. I mean, record companies have to draw the line somewhere, and until this. The idea that outtakes and stereo mixes and, and all these things found a market, you know, it was <laughs> like, like a lot of aspects in, in the entertainment industry. You know, the lifespan is, is considered to be very short. And once it's once it's, it's ephemeral, yeah. it's, yeah. ephemeral, it's yeah. junk. I mean, you know, Warner Brothers destroyed all their animation cells, you know, to store, you know, I don't know, contracts or world. Right. right. And right. don't get me started on the, uh, the sad saga of most silent films, you know, where the studio is just junk the negatives and and had them incinerated to uh, reclaim the silver and get a few get a few pennies off of each reel. Oh, oh I know. It's, it's horror stories. Mm. So, but let's talk about the outtakes because yes, that is a a, a big thing these days and uh, you guys have uh, quite a few outtakes uh, in this package. So, mm -hmm. what's a favorite from each of you? And why? And let's start with Alan. There's a song called uh, Lonely Days from the um uh, from the Wild Honey Sessions that I just adore. I mean, it's a real earworm. really gets stuck in my head. We don't even know for sure who wrote it. You know, because we went back, we, we first put a, a version of it on an album called Hawthorne about 15 years ago. And we went back to each of the guys and none of them could remember it. But it's got this lovely sort of sweet little lilting melody and they just never quite got around to finishing it. But it's just a really sweet uh, little song with a lot of interesting melodic and chord twists and turns and you know should have been a classic great mark i'd agree with that one and it's really kind of a shame when you listen to the the, the tape you know the the, vo <laughs> the vocals are no, are nowhere near complete and required a lot of editing just to make the one chorus listenable i mean it seems like something that got abandoned uh, pretty quickly vocally and they just never they never went back to it I'm also very fond of the uh, Time to Get Alone, which started, the version that we have is, is the earliest version, and then, of course, it got reworked uh, substantially before it came out in 2020. Great, guys. Okay, so all in all, I believe there's 65 tracks in this package? Something like 60, that. Yeah, yeah. I know there's 34 on the on the second disc, not 35 as Amazon <laughs> Has, has put right, right. I think I counted them up this morning, so I think it's sixty-five, thirty-one, and thirty-four. If I uh, okay, got okay. it right, so so now, how long did you guys work on this one? Well, we start. I mean, knowing that this was coming up, yeah. that we were going to do this. I mean, we we've been doing archival transfers for many, many years, so that something like this is a little easier to deal with. But I start. I started working on assembling some of these things. Oh, middle of last year, long, yeah. be long before we had a definite project or, or a release date or anything. It uh, just made sense. We pitched it to Capitol about a year ago. And, you know, I think we got the green light finally in March, beginning of March. February or March, February, March. something like that. Yeah. But, you know, we'd kind of done a lot of the guesswork. We knew where everything was. So, you know, we could pretty much jump into it. I mean, it's a wonderful thing that the Brother Records, has over the years, starting back around 2002, 2003, been very supportive of us doing this um, rather elaborate archival preservation program mm -hmm. where we've gone through, transferred the tapes to a high-res uh, Pro Tools format, constructed a database so that you can find you know, just about everything. Uh, we've made reference recordings that we've got in a fairly you know, easy-to-assemble kind of a library. So in essence, I'd say we started this project back in 2002 or 2003. 
you know, same thing with Smile. We wouldn't have been able to do the Smile project in 2011 if we hadn't, two or three years earlier, gone through and exhaustively cataloged the tapes. Right. Well, these are artifacts. These are the papyrus of our age. Yeah, so yeah. we appreciate you guys doing that. Certainly us here at the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. All right. So what was the worst horror story to get this done 50 years on? Worst horror story? Of putting this together. What was the hardest thing? Uh, to accomplish. To be honest, I think I think settling on the artwork was uh, yeah was harder than any, anything to do with <laughs> really the, yeah yeah you know just trying to make sure we stay away from girls and surfboards and and uh, <laughs> uh, you know things like that. No, I mean the the lovely thing about this project is that every everybody everybody in the band has been very supportive because this is this is a project for whatever reason I guess maybe because they were recording as a band that everybody has very positive feelings about mm -hmm. and so in, in that sense it was it was easy I, I wouldn't say anything was a horror story on this project no it, it went it, it went really smoothly there were no difficult politics to you know to work out a little bit of a scramble at times uh, because we were kind of under a short deadline but you know like I said we'd kind of done the guesswork had been done a long time ago so yeah, really, the hard work was the hardest. The hard work, all right. That's, that makes things oh, easier. Yeah, yeah. You hard work, and you, you know, you have liner notes that have to be. Uh, oh yeah, track all that down, make sure everything's credited correctly. Right. So I mean, conversely, what do you think the greatest triumph of this package is? Well, I think finally hearing, hearing Wild Honey in stereo, um, and also so clear because. Got to understand, too, that for Wild Honey, the mono version, and this was true for Smiley Smile as well, we've always been hearing copies of copies of copies. And as Mark was talking about before, since those albums were essentially, all those songs were pieced together from fragments, they all had to be, you know, spliced together. So the original mono master reels would have been quite fragile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm and not at all uh, suitable for actual production. Now, as a matter of fact, a few years ago, we reacquired, it had gone missing 40 years ago, the original first-generation quarter-inch master of the mono Smiley Smile album. And we put it up in the studio and we're listening to it and just blown away by how clear and clean it sounded. But we had to stop every four or five minutes because the splices were coming apart. Mm. You know, uh, Heroes and Villains had like six or seven spices in it. Vegetables had a whole bunch of spices and didn't have the fade on the end. So back in the day, Capital would have had to make a dub of this master and then would have made dubs from that for production and for shipping off to, you know, the record pressing plants. So it was already losing a bit of sonic quality by the time it got pressed back then. Right, right. And one nice thing about going back to the original 8-tracks that, that Mark has done here is it's going back to the first generation on all this stuff, so there's a clarity to the to the sound that you couldn't really get from the uh, you know mono pressings of the LP that came from masters that were a few generations down from the original. And we don't know, this is one of the confusing things, is we're, we're not sure we've ever seen the original mixing Mix map. Well, I know we have it. I, I, I'm, I'm sure we have it. Everything this record has ever been pressed from, from mono appears to be a copy, uh, which is also what we actually discovered for Smiley Smile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, tell them about how we found that yeah. first reel. And so. this is something that hurt, the, hurt both records as well, is, um, especially when it came to getting them on CD, that the uh, that just the you know, the overall sound was a bit muddier than it than it really should have been. Right, right. Well, you guys have done a triumph. It sounds awesome. I'll tell you, the, the thing I, I, I just was just blown away by listening to it was, you know, as a singer, I loved hearing the acapella version of Surfer Girl. It reminded me of what the constant guiding star of the Beach Boys is. It literally mm -hmm. gave me chills. I think Discovering Wild Honey as a much better album now in stereo was, was a real surprise as well. So there you have it, Diggers, 1967. Sunshine Tomorrow is now out and available. Go get it and tell us what you think at rockandrollarchaeology.com. Alan, Mark, 
it was a great pleasure having you on the show today. We look forward to keeping up with uh, all you guys do and the Beach Boys as well in the future. Yeah, tune in. Hopefully next year we'll be doing a 68 package. So We'll talk again then for the 68 mm-hmm. package. Gentlemen, well, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. about that diggers what a great detailed discussion with alan and mark and wow 65 songs in this package lots of deep cuts for the beach boys fanatics and even the most casual fan should go listen to the new stereo mix of wild honey it's a good good time i really enjoyed getting the deep background on 1967 sunshine tomorrow it's now available for you diggers so go get it Mark Linnett and Alan Boyd are deep in the archives now, and there is more to come, so we will keep an ear on these two for you. We thank Mark and Alan again for sharing their time with us today, and we thank you for stopping by. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. See you soon. Until then, keep up the rockin'. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.